The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. This week, despite tough talking from the government, bankers will get their bonuses. As public anger against the banks grows, Barclays boss Bob Diamond feels the heat at a Treasury committee grilling. We are very grateful to the, to the British taxpayer. May, may I answer? Mm. We are very grateful to the central banks around the world, to the governments around the world, for the actions that they took. No, I'm talking about the British government. Also this week, the White House report on last year's BP oil spill is in. What lessons have been learned by the oil industry from the biggest environmental disaster in US history? We hear from our in-house experts and the author of a new book about the disaster. But first, let's begin with a right old Barney, Barclays Chief Bob Diamond versus MPs. Diamond was invited to the Treasury Select Committee to answer questions about competition and choice. But, as has become customary, the session roamed into executive pay and the liability that the biggest banks have been on the UK taxpayer. Tory MP David Ruffley came over with Jeremy Paxman and got stuck in. Uh, Mr Diamond, the Bank of England have pointed out that because you're too big to fail and because the taxpayer stands behind you, as a result of that, you're much more creditworthy and therefore can borrow money much more cheaply than if you were standing alone. They've calculated the bank that that's worth £100 billion a year to the big five banks. Are you grateful to the British taxpayer for subsidising you in this way? There's a couple of answers to this. No, I, no I, are you grateful to the British taxpayer? We are very grateful to the, to the British taxpayer. May, may I answer? We are very grateful to the central banks around the world, to the governments around the world, for the actions that they took. No, I'm talking about the British government, who stand in the shoes of the British public. They say, and this is accepted, that you're too big to fail. And the taxpayer stands behind you. That makes you more creditworthy. It means you can borrow much more cheaply than if you're a standalone organisation. Now, what I'm asking you, Mr Diamond, is are you grateful to the British public? Can I ask you one question? Can you answer that question? Uh, I, I, I ask the questions, you give the answers. Okay. But you, you are you grateful to the British public? Part of what you said. Are you grateful well, to the British public? Uh, we are Diamond very grateful to the central banks. We're very grateful to everyone. We're very grateful to everyone that has helped um, the financial system. Get, the British taxpayer. Get back. We're thankful for everyone. David Ruffley versus Bob Diamond at the Treasury Select Committee on Tuesday. Jill. Bob Diamond's appearance in front of the Treasury Select Committee was the banking equivalent of a heavyweight title fight, or at least some thought. Did it work out that way? The committee actually didn't pack as many punches as they might have done. I mean, John Mann tried a few killer questions. You know, are you going to take your bonus? You know, will you forego your bonus? But nobody actually at any point said to Diamond, the question that we've all wanted to ask is, are you the highest paid person at Barclays? What might your bonus be? You know, those sorts of questions weren't asked. I mean, there were definitely some tricky moments for him. You know, the questions he was asked by by John Mann about was he going to give back his bonus? Clearly that exchange you've heard about roughly was extremely annoying for him. And, you know, Diamond, who once told me he could get a little hot um, at that moment, was clearly trying not to get a little hot. He did a bit, I suspect. Some of the things Diamond tried, I think, backfired a little. He, you know, he tried... 
at a point where he was sort of being described as some sort of master of the universe, tried to explain that, in fact, you know, he's the oldest of nine. You know, his parents were teachers. His his grandparents were Irish immigrants. You know, that, you know, that he true was a, a man who, who had started with nothing and, and sort of said to the MPs, you know, look, you know, I learned pretty young that if I wanted anything, I'd have to buy it for myself. You know, at that point, the MP said to him, you know, look, I've got tears pouring down my eyes and here's my violin. You know... You can understand what Diamond was trying to do. I mean, you know, he isn't a man who was born into wealth and privilege um, and, he ha- and he is self-made. But, you know, whether that worked quite well at this moment in time, I, I, let's see. But I, I doubt it did. So if it wasn't cathartic, was it informative? Did we learn new things about Bob Diamond and Barclays? I've got to be honest, as somebody who's followed Diamond for a long time, I felt a lot of his answers were scripted and I'd hear them before. I suspect because Diamond had a high public profile in the media, but probably hasn't been heard speaking, that to some people it might have sounded quite uh, an interesting exchange. That's not to say that it wasn't a worthwhile exercise. For instance, on a number of occasions, he kept using this word, the sort of mantle of power, that he was trying to talk about transferring the, the sort of growth in the economy from the public sector to the private and particularly to banks. You know, it was this sort of argument that banks like Barclays should be allowed to start growing so that they can get the engine of the economy whirling again. But I guess it would be informative because probably for the first time people got to see this man speaking live under the pressure of MPs who, let's face it, aren't always very polite. There was another trick that Bob Diamond tried to pull, which he did before, which is where he tries to set aside the uh, case of Barclays being an exception to the banking crisis. Look, we came through this okay. A bit like Lloyd Blankfein tries to do for Goldman Sachs. Did he manage to convince any MPs of that? I don't think that he did, actually. I mean, it was roughly particularly who was picking up on this point about how the Bank of England has said how important the liquidity it's poured into the system has been for banks, all banks, including Barclays. Um, I mean, he kept saying how proud he was and how kept referring to the 150,000 people that Barclays employed and how proud they were to have got through the crisis without taxpayer funds. I suspect that the MPs didn't buy that line that clearly. Uh, particularly, I, I think roughly particularly, was was pretty uh, annoyed at that point. Now, that wasn't all the banking news that we got from Parliament yesterday because in the afternoon we had this. On the 1st of January this year, we introduced the most stringent code of practice of any financial centre in the world. There will, for the first time, be a strict limit on the amount of bonus payable in upfront cash. There will also, for the first time, be a requirement that 50% of bonuses are paid in shares or other non-cash instruments, which bank employees will not be allowed to sell on for an appropriate period. Guaranteed bonuses will become the exception and not the rule, as they were under the previous government. And crucially, Mr Speaker, the new bonus code has been significantly extended. It will cover payments and bonuses at 2,500 firms, while the code we inherited covered pay and bonuses at only 25 individual firms. Jill, that was George Osborne there taking an emergency question from Alan Johnson. What was he trying to do? I think what he's trying to prove is that the government hasn't gone soft on bonuses, i.e. that that he's given the city a free reign to pay however they see fit because essentially he needs the city to grow, he needs the tax income that comes in. Bob Diamond today, for instance, was very keen to get across this point. They paid £2 billion in in, in tax last year. Um, I guess he's also trying to get back at Labour. You know, a a lot of the stuff, the the newest part, I guess, of this statement is this idea that Labour has left them to sort out RBS this year in 2010. You know, Labour ensured it had a veto over the bonus pool at RBS in in, in 2009. But in 2010, it, it didn't seek any such assurances. So it was, I mean, there was a lot of political playing going on there today. 
What's your take? Is George Osborne selling out or is he displaying a certain degree of mature pragmatism? Now, that's a question. Um, I'm going to spin it into the bankers that I speak to, which is always the way I deal with questions that I'm not entirely certain how to answer, is that, you know, the banks do not do not appear to feel scared or intimidated by this government. I mean, clearly negotiations are going on about trying to ensure that that there are loans put into the economy. It does seem as if there is a little bit of leeway going on the way disclosure could be made, but it won't go anywhere near as far as Labour would have done or that many of the pay critics in the city would like to see. The reality is banks are in the business of lending. It's what they do. So getting banks to lend really is not that difficult. So if I could find a banker who felt threatened by the government, then maybe I'd be able to to provide an answer that said, actually, you know, Osborne's scaring them to death. But it does at that moment in time, it doesn't feel like that. All I may right. not have yet found the banker, though. So if the government wants to establish a trade-off between lending and bank bonuses, how's it going to make sure banks do the lending they're asking? Well, Diamond was asked this, so I can sort of... I'll use his answer a bit to try and explain. He was asked specifically, are you being asked to lend 10% more than you were last year? And, and, and Diamond's point, he wouldn't answer that question, actually. But what he kept saying was, you know, we can't lend on a non-commercial basis. That's not safe. That's sort of how we got into this crisis in the first place. You know, the previous administration put legally binding lending targets on the banks we bailed out. And the fact is those targets were missed. And the government didn't do anything about it because they bought the argument that actually we can't lend to businesses that aren't in credit. So how much leeway does the government have? My suspicion is that they could say, these are the lending targets, the banks have agreed to them. In a year's time when they're overhauled and reviewed, if they haven't been met, not a lot will happen. You can read more from Jill and the rest of the team on this story at guardian.co.uk forward slash business. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. As I reached for the handle, I heard this awful hissing noise, this whoosh, and at the height of the hiss, a huge explosion. There's oil leaking, and we need to stop it, and we need to stop it as soon as possible. With that source being 5,000 feet under the ocean surface, this has been extremely difficult. But scientists and engineers are currently using the best, most advanced technology that exists to try to stop the flow of oil as quickly as possible. The anger at BP and the federal government is enormous. You can have your oil back. You can have your oil back. This has become the largest oil spill response in our nation's history. I'm not going to rest or be satisfied until the leak is stopped at the source, the oil in the Gulf is contained and cleaned up, and the people of the Gulf are able to go back to their lives and their livelihoods. In general, I would say that it's been unfair for him to get all the blame for an accident committed by an oil company. And at the same time, I said that I think we overly blame George Bush for the hurricane. No one who wants this thing over more than I do. You know, I'd like my life back. BP's board meets Monday amid a flood of reports that Hayward is out. Terry McAllister, energy editor of The Guardian in London, says the decision to oust Hayward is an attempt to salvage the BP brand. The company cannot continue um, in its present state in America. We, we are, we're going to survive somehow. It might take a couple years to get back to us, the shrimp and the way of life that we used to have. I mean, but at least we better get on with our life, you know. At around 9.45pm on the 20th of April last year, an explosion ripped through the Deepwater Horizon rig off the southern coast of Mississippi. 11 workers were killed and 17 others were injured. 
Over the three months that followed, 4.9 million barrels of oil spewed into the Gulf of Mexico, inflicting untold damage to wildlife and causing the fishing and tourism industries in the area to be shut down temporarily. This week, an official US government report concluded that better management by BP and its key contractors Halliburton and Transocean would almost certainly have prevented the blowout. I'm joined now by The Observer's business editor, Andrew Clark, The Guardian's energy editor, Terry McAllister, and the author of a book about the Deepwater Horizon disaster called In Too Deep, Stanley Reid. Stanley, first question to you. We've already had a flurry of reports, and this certainly isn't the last word. Are we any closer to establishing whether this was BP's fault? Well, I don't think it was all BP's fault, but I think they were mainly responsible because it was their well, and I think they created a an, a pressured atmosphere that may well have, have contributed to people making hasty decisions that made the whole situation more dangerous. That that certainly is what one would conclude from the um, from the National Commission report that came out yesterday. Andrew, you were reporting from the US when the oil spill happened. Do you think a report like this oil spill commissions serves as a informative moment or a cathartic moment? Um, I think it's both. I think it's interesting to to hear that it wasn't just BP that was responsible. It was also Transocean and Halliburton, two of their contractors. And that does contradict the original line from the White House, Robert Gibbs, President Obama's main spokesman was going around saying BP was entirely responsible and there was a uh, a politically motivated effort to set up BP as the sole villain here because President Obama wanted ideally a foreign company to whom he could direct all of the anguish about this. Terry McAllister do you agree that BP's been put up and it's been stitched up? Um, Well, I agree in the sense that it was very, very convenient indeed for the American administration to have a a British company at the centre of this and to start using um, the expression British Petroleum, which wasn't uh, two words that I'd heard for the last 10 years. I mean, they are colloquially known and traditionally known and stock market listed as BP. So it was an odd one. I think it was very convenient. Was BP at the absolute epicenter, uh, very largely responsible for all this? Absolutely. Stanley, in your book, In Too Deep, you paint uh, a culture of what seems like swashbuckling arrogance at BP. Do you see that reflected in the report that we got from the Oil Spill Commission? Not so much arrogance, but but clearly rushing for for no really good reason you know in in retrospect they had a lot of problems as as we say in the book a lot of problems with this well they should have been on high alert and instead they made decision after decision to kind of go ahead without being completely sure what they were doing without having perhaps all the right equipment in place and, and so on. So it's, it seems more just, um, you know, let's being pushed, and, you know, it must be for financial uh, considerations without um, being sure that they were safe. And, and you just can't do that in this business, which is a, which is a very dangerous one. But I, it's worth pointing out that this operation, the, the Macondo well, they were trying to shut it down and things were running late. And I, I believe I'm right in saying it was costing them a million dollars a day 
the delay. Any decision whereby there's a more expensive option they could have taken, you can say that was putting profits over safety. But it's difficult to expect a, a large company with shareholders not to consider money as a factor in these decisions, isn't it? Right, but but if you do a, a kind of risk and reward, you know, admittedly um, analysis, admittedly in hindsight, they might have saved with all the things they were doing, what I've heard, maybe $15 million. This is ended, ending up costing them tens of billions. So, so I think it was really a, you know, a poor decision-making process. And, and, and I, I found what the conclusion that the commission made that this was due to poor management really on the mark. Um, I mean, it, it, they just don't seem to have thought things through. I think I think what I'd like to to say here is that um, they give a list in this commission report of nine decisions which were fairly critical and turned out to be um, wrong and bad decisions. And BP was responsible solely for seven of them, and two of them were shared out um, between the different parties. But having said that, the the report is also extremely damning of the industry as a whole. It doesn't just concentrate on the role of BP. It does widen it out, not just to the three companies, but actually to, to the wider industry. And I quote, The oil and gas industry currently has no discernible, broadly embraced culture of safety. That is an astonishing thing to say about an industry. And it certainly um, drives a stake through the comments that usually come. If you talk to any oil company or service company about what they're doing, they always start with a comment, safety always comes first. Quite clearly, that is wrong. It doesn't happen. And the industry's got an enormous way to go to um, instill confidence again for the public. Right. I agree with that. And the the report is also very damning of the regulators and the government. Um, and, and, and I think in that sense, it, it somewhat um, kind of mitigates the, um, the pressure on BP because because it's it's the as you said the whole industry the regulators and so on and a lot of what BP did the regulators signed off on um, so that that may may ease you know the legal pressure on them a bit. Okay, so where do we go from here, Terry McAllister? Will you come on this podcast when we can tempt you on? And last time you came on, you predicted correctly that Tony Hayward wouldn't keep his job as chief exec. What do you think the future holds for BP? I think there's a there's a wider problem which um, Stanley was talking about there, which is the problems with the regulator. And although there's been all sorts of recommendations in this commission report to improve safety, beef up the regulator and copy the North Sea, I personally think there's continuing problems, not just that side of the Atlantic, but also here. The regulator might be, in theory, independent, but there's this enormous pressure from these very, very large companies, which I think swamp regulators um, all over the world. The future for BP, I think, is very much um, still up in the air. I mean, the share price has bounced back massively. Everyone's elated by the idea that it looks like they're not going to be um, um, legally responsible for gross negligence. I don't know whether it's right to conclude that at this moment. I don't think it is. Um, I think BP continues to be extremely vulnerable. I think its position in the US, which is a key market, is is um, very badly weakened. And I still think that it's uh, a takeover is still possible. 
Having said that, I think it's worth pointing out that um, <clears throat> at the, uh, in the months following the spill, there were various doom mongers who were going around. There was one particular oil analyst called Matthew Simmons, who has actually since died, but he was touring American TV studios predicting that BP's bankruptcy was inevitable, that the company was finished, that it's all over. And those people turned out to be dead wrong. Um, uh, th- th- there have been stories recently of a possible, uh, of a takeover approach from, from Shell that apparently happened a few months ago. Um, a- and they're, they're clearly at a vulnerable stage, aren't they, before um, th- there's still a weakness in the share price until we find out for definite whether they're going to face uh, gross misconduct litigation or not. So it's in that window of opportunity that I guess uh, a, a takeover approach could, could happen before they return to something approaching normality. Stanley, doesn't uh, Obama need to do something pretty drastic to BP and to the oil industry? I, I think he needs to demonstrate that, you know, that lessons have been learned and, and so on. I don't know about BP. I, I think he – my view is that he made a deal with them in June when when they agreed to that um, $20 billion um, escrow fund um, – which runs for three years, and 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 uh, I mean the payments they make into it uh, go for three years. So that gives the White House at least a medium-term interest in you know BP's um, staying around, and and he he basically said that um, at at the time. So I tend to think that they will let um, they they don't want to put BP out of business. They may want to cut them back somewhat in the Gulf um, remains to be seen. And don't, don't see clear signs of where they're going to go yet. Um, there's still, there's still um, uh, Justice Department investigations and so on running, so we'll have to see what, what those turn up. Andrew, you cast your mind back to last spring, and one of the things that uh, comes most readily to mind is public outrage, American outrage at what happened Surely there's got to be some channeling that outrage into direct action on the industry. Well, absolutely. I mean, the you know this this report, as Terry was saying earlier, clearly shows us that there's a a problem of safety management across the industry, and that needs to be addressed. There's also still this open question about the uh, the ban on deep water drilling in U.S. waters and what the future holds for that. I think it's worth bearing in mind there that the part of the outrage, well, the outrage was escalated by some unfortunate comments by Tony Hayward, his comment that he wanted his life back and, you know, BP's early foolish estimates that the amount of oil spilling into the Gulf uh, wasn't that much. Um, he's gone um, and BP, for all its faults, has, I think, done a reasonably good job of cleaning up the mess and has provided all the money it's been asked for to compensate by an independent claims administrator. So they've gone some way towards answering their critics on that point. Another point I might make is is that, you know, the outrage is, is mixed, as it were. I mean, around the Gulf of Mexico, people are very much in favour of deep water drilling and and want to see it resume as as soon as possible um and and it's not a surprise because it's created thousands of of uh high paying jobs around that area it's it's really it's really all that they have except tourism and and uh, and fishing and 
And um, in terms of, of polls that um, my organization, Bloomberg, has done, um, it seems like as if the American public has not been um, made more opposed to um, to offshore drilling by this incident. Rather surprisingly, they seem to have uh, become kind of more educated about it and realize that despite the uh, the risks that it that it's you know as long as we're so dependent on oil and gas it's it's necessary terry where do you think this leads offshore drilling well i think it leaves offshore drilling in a situation where it's going to cost the industry more everybody's going to have to be that much more careful and i'm delighted that the commission report looks forward and talks about even more environmentally sensitive areas than the Gulf, such as the Arctic, which is going to see a big um, drilling boom. And I'm delighted that they're looking forward to that and saying that really there's got to be in place much more extensive measures to deal with an oil spill. And I'd, I'd like, again, if I could, just very quickly to, to, to give a quote that I think also from this report is extraordinarily damaging, and that is, the Macondo well accident and subsequent investigations revealed that while industry had devoted billions of dollars to the technologies required for deep water drilling, it had devoted essentially nothing to creating alternative capabilities to deal with the foreseeable consequence of a disaster. And that is kind of really, really um, damning and depressing. But I'd also just like to say one thing, and that is that it's possible uh, that we're all complicit in this. The government is certainly complicit in all this. The fact is that governments, whether it's America or Britain or elsewhere, earn enormous amounts of revenues from keeping these oil streams um, flowing, that they get the tax revenues they don't want fields to be shut down they do want to keep the taps open and so they themselves just like bp are also to a certain extent compromised between this endless pushing and shoving between what's safe and what keeps the money flowing right and they they also get jobs from them you know with the exception of florida uh, which which doesn't have um, drilling nearby and and depends on tourism the uh, the other gulf states are very pro drilling and and it's really the best industry they have it's it's almost kind of like a you know a, a version of silicon valley down there um let's end by just considering one of the platitudes that often came up in wake of deep water horizon which was that disaster would force not just america but a number of other countries to reappraise their dependence on oil do you think that's come to pass terry no, I don't think it's come to pass at all. And actually, I think um, as Stanley has just um, described when he was talking about the southern states, actually, if anything, perhaps people are just that much more aware and perhaps a bit more respectful, actually, of, of oil, funnily enough. I don't think there's any sign that it's led to a, a bounce back towards green technologies. I agree with Terry. It was interesting to see this week uh, the Detroit Motor Show is underway. And once again, everyone there is talking about electric vehicles. Um, But they still, even though they've been around for a few years now, they still command a very tiny proportion of the car market. Americans, particularly Americans, all of us really, we're not really moving away from, from oil, you know, fossil fuel driven vehicles. And that's not going to happen in the near future. Stanley, we had a huge disaster last year. We're having a spike in oil prices this year and 
any sign of weaning ourselves off oil? Certainly not in the short term. Um, demand is, is, uh, has, has bounced back um, you know, very sharply and, and, and we could well see further rises. Stanley Reed's book, In Too Deep, is published by Wiley and is out this month. My thanks to him and to Jill Trainer, Terry McAllister and Andrew Clark. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Edith Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.